worked against me. So rather than starting something new and then having business meeting next Sunday night, I thought I would just finish the sermon that I really wanted to preach. And here's why I wanted to do that. You guys missed the best part of the sermon. We drilled deep into the doctrinal issue of what it means to be reconciled, but we didn't spend any time this morning looking at how we should apply that to our lives. And we find this model in Paul's writing quite often, that he will first explain the doctrinal issue, and then he explodes and looks at all of the different implications of it. As a matter of fact, just looking at the structure that we find in the book of Ephesians, the letter that he writes to the church in Ephesus, Everything begins by looking at what does it mean to be adopted into this family? What does it mean to be saved from being children of wrath and everything else? And he builds into the establishment of the church, that the church should be united, that we have new life. What should that new life look like? What does it mean to walk in love? All of these different implications. And now he's kind of putting parenthesis around that as he talks about what does it mean to walk with the whole armor of God? See, Theology and and doctrine, when we talk about it, and and I think me in particular, this this is really my problem. When we talk about it, it is so easy to just stop at the cool truths that we can uncover. But doctrine's actually a means to an end. The entire purpose of it should be to point us towards how should we actually live. It should have application. I mean, that's what it means to have real transformation in all of this. And if we're just studying the Bible to be airheads, we're really not worshiping God. And that's really what we're here to do all along. So let's take a moment. And again, we'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And tonight we'll wrap up. Ephesians 6.15, looking at what does it mean to put on the readiness of the gospel peace. First, let me read just our passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This morning what we looked at was that the shoes that we're supposed to put on do not exist so that we can run a marathon or go a long distance, but rather so that we can stand to the opposition of spiritual warfare, that we would have firm footing and that that firm footing would allow us to stand on truth. The second point that we looked at was that that firm footing, that standing on truth, was based on peace. And we looked at what peace means. Looking at that, we mainly drilled into the fact that what God has done 
through his salvation, through the salvific work, what Christ has done through the cross, all of this is pointing towards a reconciliation between man and God. That is, no longer being enemies with God, but in fact being his friend. Because I have the time, I'd like to explain a little bit what that doctrine of reconciliation looks like in four points. First, and we talked about this some this morning, God and God alone takes the initiative in reconciliation. Uh, Welker, uh, Welker said, only a truncated understanding of sin and a false understanding of atonement can suggest that human beings in their midst of enslavement to death might yet be in a position to reconcile and appease God. For example, through an offering of some sort. This is the problem that we run into when we realize that we are in an enmity with God. How is it possible for us to then also become His friend? And the idea, um, almost cultic in a sense, is that we have to offer a sacrifice so that we can become His friends. In fact, this is the very model that, get, that God gives the nation of Israel in the establishment of the Levitical law. And He gives us this picture of returning to this. The problem is that that never perfectly satisfies our relationship with God because we continue to sin. It's oxymoronic in a lot of senses because when we realize that our sin nature puts us in opposition to God and we actually understand it in terms of enslavement, the way that God describes it, there is no hope within any individual of returning to God. That's why it's so important that we preach the whole gospel. When, when we talk about the difficult truths that exist inside of the gospel and why we would even bother proclaiming that God is just to judge the world, it is hinged upon the reality of people need to realize there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. That's why I believe God spends time in His Word giving us those examples and those illustrations. In soft-hearted and soft-minded churches, what we find is people who say that they believe in salvation by faith alone, but at the same time contradict themselves in the way that they actually live. And this is simple. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. You are born an enemy of God. God has extended His grace to us in all things that give us, in a common sense, something you'll see beyond those who are saved and those who are not saved, a sense of morality, a natural law that can be observed in creation. I told you guys that I had a conversation with a pantheist and a mysticist, uh, my brother and cousin a few weeks ago. Did I tell you that one of the attributes of God, or the creator or the designer as we were referring to Him, that they brought up was that He was moral? based on a building of knowledge of what they could observe in creation, they told me that this designer was moral. This is a natural extension of what God has given to all people through common grace, a sense of morality, a natural law. But the problem is that these gifts cannot be used to satisfy God's judgment. This is the conundrum. This is the conundrum of having any, and perhaps as some might even say, the curse 
of having knowledge of your own existence. That you have an understanding of a sense of morality, that you understand a natural law, and you realize that you are constantly imperfect and unable to save yourself through those two things. This is Romans chapter 1, God's natural revelation. Real redemption is through God's particular grace. I said an understanding of a sense of morality and natural law would be common grace extended to all people throughout creation, but he also has his particular grace in those that he calls his own. He also gives to them the grace to understand that redemption is through him by placing faith in their hearts, by allowing them to be justified, that this imputed sin is given over to Christ, that Christ's righteousness would then be imputed onto the saint. And through this real redemption, the Bible teaches, this real atonement takes place. This new nature forms. Inside of man, who is flawed and in everything, Everything that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 begins to unfurl itself. The love chapter in the Bible begins to explode inside of the Christian's heart. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, the world would know you by the way that you love one another because that love manifested in the Christian only happens through Christ loving you first. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's 1 John 3.16. And this love begins to have an impact. God's act of reconciliation works in His will through His initiative to create in us something new. This is back to the conundrum. How could we preach about hell or man's enmity with God or fallen nature And at the same time, spend so much time looking at the marvelous love given to us by God. Well, we have to reconcile these two ideas. Indeed, we have to reconcile God's wrath and God's love and perfect holiness. Well, indeed, all of these things are accomplished through His act of reconciliation. A second point about what reconciliation means would be to look at it in its eschatological character. What the heck does that mean? That God's plan since the beginning was a perfect creation. Right? Genesis chapter 1, he created something perfect. It's Genesis chapter 3, it falls and it begins to become corrupted. But what takes place after that? Do you think God wants to abandon this creation just so He could have us? Or does He have a design and a purpose in doing this? Is His perfect will corrupted by man's sin? No. Eschatology is the study of end times in Scripture. The doctrine of reconciliation, then, is actually pointing to the end time that God's will and plan is not just to reconcile humanity, but it is to reconcile His whole creation to redeem His whole creation and to put it back into the perfect design that it was. Brother John and I were talking in the, during the WMA about this concept of the body taking on the imperishable. And it, it resonated with me through studying this, that one of the things that takes place is all of creation takes on this imperishable component. 
The peace resulting from reconciliation is all about the removal of the distortion brought on by evil in this world. God's reconciliation then will form the foundation of his new creation, his redemption in man and also everything else that exists in creation. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 give us this picture. God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. In this passage, all things refers to the total cosmological restoration of the world as it was before the fall. Now, if you needed any picture of how amazing salvation was, it's not just enmity with God being reconciled, but it is evil turning to good, hostility turning to peace, hatred turning to love. It is amazing. Romans 16, 20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. His grace is doing a great thing. Through an understanding of the plan for reconciliation and creation, and through the end of time, we see a meaning and a purpose for the church in its present day. This is where we start to get into the application. I've struggled, even in my study of Scripture and my faith in Christ, to comprehend what could possibly be the purpose of the church in a fallen world. Why couldn't Christ, and and He does if we understand that His salvation begins with Him, that it's not actually anything besides Him placing faith inside of man, this teaching, if it's there, why does He leave us? And we see the bigger plan is that through this reconciliation, through the end time, His purpose for the church is in the current day because it's for reconciliation to all things. It's a cooperative ministry. Reconciliation then goes beyond just being a picture of what God has done in His initiative or what He will do in the future, but it's relational in the present as well. While justification, when we talk about our salvation in Christ, that the moment that you place your faith in Christ, you're justified, and that means that you're just as if you had never sinned. It's interesting to think about what would be the purpose of nerdy folks like Brother Derek making a distinction between justification and reconciliation. Don't they mean the same thing? Actually, they don't, and Paul makes a distinction between them too. Justification is a jurist term. It means to be um, condemned worthy or condemned just or, or marked just. Well, reconciliation seems to come from the Hellenistic tradition in Paul's day. What happens in reconciliation is that this broken relationship is restored. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24 picks up after describing the old means of reconciliation before God, that is his Levitical system and the law, and it shows us Christ as the better sacrifice. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with all these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
To be a friend of God rather than a subject of God means an application, not just to turn away from enmity with him, but with an attitude that is no longer rebellious towards him to literally refrain from the revolt that has been born into man through a means of constantly reminding oneself that I don't know it all that I fall into sin, that I am corruptible in my fallen nature, in the flesh that I still indwell. I need Christ. As much as I needed Him for salvation on the day that I placed my faith in Him, I need Him today as I live with Him, to dwell with Him and to abide with Him. This is a, a radical change in the human predicament, and it gives us new life and new relationship with the possibility of being a friend of God. The reason for seeing peace is that it is a contrast or a juxtaposition of the old life that the Christian lives with him. The love of God. The love of God has been extended to a fallen race. Though Christ, the Savior of all men, there's hope in saving grace. The love of God is greater far than gold or silver ever could afford. It reaches past the highest star and covers all the world. Its power is eternal, eternal. Its glory, supernal, supernal. When all the earth shall pass away, there will always be the love of God. It goes beneath the deepest stain that sin could ever leave. When we preach the whole gospel, it ends with love. But that love is measured by the depth at which it has to reach. That depth of a corruptible and fallen nature, redeeming souls to live again, who will on Christ believe, are only ones who are able to see God's love for what it is. If we understand the doctrine of revelation, the focus that we should turn to is the application that Paul gives us in verse 15 that we should put on the readiness, or the King James translates this, to put on the preparedness of sharing the gospel of peace. Because the truth is, if we preach the gospel the way that we are supposed to, rather than trusting our own wisdom, because let's be honest, in my human wisdom, my grandma told me that you catch more flies with honey than you do. How's that? What is, what's that idiom? With salt? Is it salt? Or vinegar. Oh, vinegar. That's it. Yeah. Man, flies love vinegar, though. Anyways. <laughs> My human wisdom says that preaching the whole gospel will not save the world. It will not save the community. In fact, it won't even save the saints that are entrusted to the ministry of this church. God's promise is contrary to that. That His Word, preached sufficiently, is the only means or mechanism that will save anyone. Because it's not my human wisdom that people need. I mean it when I say that I'm flawed. I mean it when I say that it's even possible for me to overreact to cultural changes and to think that, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But God's word is sufficient, incorruptible, true, reliable. 
What if instead of trusting my own intuition, reasoning, rationale, logic, I just trusted Him? What if instead of worrying about catching flies, I just focused on being faithful? Isn't that what God tells us to do? When He tells the disciples, come with me so I can teach you how to be fishers of men, does He tell them that your job is actually to fish men, or does He tell them your job's just to be faithful? To be prepared to walk into cities and to be rejected, and when you leave them, shake off the dust from the bottom of your feet and go on. The whole gospel is good. The church, I've said, and and this is true, does not exist for the purpose of saving the world. That's the responsibility of each individual Christian. The church exists to care for the saints. When we avoid our vinegar doctrines like judgment and wrath and resurrection and condemnation and everything that comes with that, what are we actually avoiding? We're instead, we're, we're modeling ourselves to care for a world that does not belong in the church to begin with. And we're robbing the saints of the care that they actually need. We're preventing ourselves from actually going deep into Scripture, becoming Bereans and studying God's Word and caring about it, encouraging one another, having relationships that are meaningful. Well, that's the consequence. What if we were just faithful and trusted God to do the work of saving people instead of asking ourselves to do it? And our faith was measured by our obedience to Him to simply do what He tells us to do, to preach the whole gospel. Yeah? If we preach the whole gospel, we're going to run some people off. If we preach the whole gospel, we're going to offend some people. If we preach the whole gospel, we're going to hurt some feelings. Even amongst saints, we're going to hurt feelings. It's easy for us to say that there's no one among us who is perfectly glorified on this side of heaven, that one day we look forward to that glorification when we can be with Christ and in His presence. But it's difficult whenever we put names to sin and we call one another to put on the righteousness of God, to put on all of these different things. Well, this is the gospel that we are ready not just to present these things in a curmudgeon-type fashion, but we are also ready in the attitude of peace. That's the gospel. This is the entire part of reconciliation, that peace can be established through our willingness to do this. Our attention being drawn to this readiness is actually seen in the attitude of our hearts whenever we confront someone with anything, whether we confront them for being great or we confront them for doing something wrong. Our confrontation should be with the attitude of readiness. And I've struggled with this. I'll tell you, this weekend was difficult for me. Over the past four years, whenever I've gone to visit my grandma Penny, I've never had to do it with any of my other family around me. I've been able to visit her all by myself, or I'd bring Michelle with me, but I didn't have to deal with my dad. And if you guys don't know it, that relationship has not been great. I've reached out to him with reconciliation, but the truth is, every single time that I have, he has prioritized everything and anything over time with me. 
There's a selfish part of me that wants to write him off and to quit trying. To quit even attempting to reconcile with him because I'm tired of being let down. Isn't that the same attitude that we have when someone's done wrong against us? Do you take that to God right then or do you keep on trying? Well, the truth is, Miss Janie, God has continued to provide opportunities for me to extend that reconciliation to Him. And in my sinfulness, and this is the problem, right? In my sinfulness, I've been blind to it. I've even been blind to the sin condition that causes me not to want to go to my dad and to reconcile with him. And if it hadn't been for Christian saints around me encouraging me, I would never be able to see that sin at all. Well, this is the necessity of the church. That saints are able to look at me and they're able to say, hey, Derek, you should look beyond your human wisdom because while you might be thinking that you are righteous in this, your attitude's not in the right place. I had a situation just this last week. I, I called two Christian brothers who are outside of this church. I said, look at this. Call me back. Let's talk about it. Christian brothers who were able to tell me, you know, to, just to give me sound advice and sound encouragement because I need the church. As fallible human beings, we have to be willing to admit when we have wronged someone else. Even when the wrong's been done against us, the gospel of peace is actually extending that arm. Ron Fields, I remember, I think he was preaching from Romans whenever he gave this illustration, but um, I'll use it now anyways. He said, imagine a wall, and you don't know what's on the other side of that wall, but you know every time you walk by it, a sword gets shoved through and swung around. That's the picture of enmity. That's what mankind does to God in his rebellion. Constant enmity with God working against him. Human reasoning then, it says, I want to stay away from that hole in the wall. God's act of salvation is the equivalent of him walking up to the hole and sticking his arm through it for a handshake. We don't know what's on the other side whenever we're called to reconcile. We don't know what's on the other side. God, however, does because He's all-knowing and all-powerful and omniscient and all these things. But His extension of reconciliation is through enmity. Resistance to the gospel is the equivalent of your arm getting chopped off and being ready to stick your other arm through the same hole. The readiness of the gospel is being able to return to this time and time again. We have to be willing to admit when we're wrong. The principle of making things right is seen in the Old Testament commands for restitution. Exodus 22.1 tells us that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. He gives us the picture in the law that reconciliation is active and that we should go after, go after reconciling these different things, even through restitution to make those amends. 
Jesus' interaction with the chief tax collector in Luke 19 gives us the picture. Remember Zacchaeus sitting on the tree? He's commanded to go and make reparations for the wrong that he had done. You should be so eager to reconcile in our own lives. This is what it means to be a practitioner of reconciliation. If someone's done wrong against us, we shouldn't withhold going to them to make that reconciliation. It is a big problem when the church starts to look like the world. Tremendous problem. The implications are huge. Human reasoning says if somebody does something wrong against you, you should just guard yourself from them doing that thing again. The Bible teaches if somebody does something wrong against you, you should actively go to them to confront them with what they've done. Human reasoning teaches us to be cowardice. But what's the consequence of it? That we've lost a brother, that we've degraded a relationship. What else is the consequence? That we become so afraid to make any mistakes because we don't trust that anyone will come to us with a tender heart seeking reconciliation, that we don't speak when we should. When I listen to people in the world and in the workplace and all of these different things, I hear the same thing. They want genuine, authentic relationships. At work, they want people who are actually trying to do their best. The only way we can ever do that, if we admit that none of us are perfect, is to give each other license to make mistakes and trust each other to build us up when we do that. That doesn't just go for the church. That goes for me. I need license to make mistakes. I'm fallible. If you'll turn to the Word and show me where I've erred, then then we can build each other up. Because we don't want to lose a brother. We don't want to lose a sister. Jesus says, If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and come and offer your gift. If he repents, you have gained your brother. Confrontation with the right attitude is beautiful, but it comes from this place of understanding what God has done in his own reconciliation. There's no measure of greater understanding of God's reconciliation than when we practice reconciliation in our own lives because it's through that that we're able to demonstrate that what God has done for us we actually see in ourselves. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by His own betrayed, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as He stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, He took a crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, Hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Sent of heaven God's own Son to purchase and to and redeem and to reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Loved ones, when we look at what it means to 
put on the shoes of gospel peace, there are a few imperative applications that we should make. That we should recognize that the church is not a place for the world, either in practice, thinking, or even in function. The church belongs to the saints. We should be willing to go deep. The church isn't here to care for the world. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for the world. But we should take that as an individual problem that we are to address. Through your relationships, through your neighborhoods, through the places that you work, you as an individual are the only person given the command to share the gospel. To be willing to reconcile that peace when people find difficulty in understanding God's righteous judgment. The church is to care for those who God will save as a result of your faithfulness. 